Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. I'm Cameron Abassi, Editor-in-Chief of the BMJ. This week, we're going to take a look back at COVID-19 and acknowledge what the workforce went through. Rachel Clark, a palliative care doctor in the UK, uh, has been doing that first in a book called Breathtaking, which is now also a TV drama. And she'll join us to talk about what it's been like reliving those days on screen. We'll also be talking about depression with new research that puts meat on the bones of the advice we've all heard about how physical activity can help relieve depressive symptoms. We'll find out exactly what exercise works best. I'll be joined today by my colleagues from the BMJ, Paul Timpson and Jolie Neal. First of all, uh, a new article published this week on bmj.com is looking at medical information on social media. The article says that one in four of the most viewed videos on the subject of COVID in English on YouTube contained misleading or inaccurate information, according to a 2020 study published in one of our journals, BMJ Global Health. We've also recently published a collection of articles on how to improve vaccine confidence. So today I'm joined by Paul Simpson, who spent a lot of time working on that collection. So welcome, Paul. Hi, Cameron. Nice to be with you. Good to speak with you. So tell us a little bit about the collection, Paul, and why we put this together. Yeah, so the, the collection is 12 articles and two video interviews. Um, the articles are a mix of research, analysis and opinion. Um, and they're really looking at this kind of question of vaccine confidence and how social media can influence it. And the, the focus of the collection is really um, countries outside of the, the global north. And it, and it won't be a surprise to uh, listeners that uh, it's really the COVID-19 pandemic that's brought these two questions of vaccine confidence and social media to the fore. Okay, so first of all, just to be clear, who these organisations we worked with, just tell listeners who they are. Yeah, so all of the articles are written by um, academic researchers from institutions from around the world. Um, the for the research studies, those um, those teams had won competitive grants through the Vaccine Confidence Fund, and uh, for the uh, narrative articles, we commissioned those based on the advice of another academic group of series advisors that we appointed. Uh, but I think that the the nub of the question that you're asking is who who's providing the money for this uh, project, and that's a an organisation called the Advancing Health Online Initiative, and that was started by uh, Merck and Meta alongside not-for-profit partners. So people will obviously be wondering, you're looking into the role of social media in terms of vaccine hesitancy, misinformation. You worked with Meta, you were funded by Meta. How did that work? How do we disentangle those relationships? Yeah, okay, fair question then. Um, So BMJ obviously not involved in any of the grant selection but neither are Merck or Meta. Um, that's handled by a, a third party called uh, Global Impact. Uh, when it comes to publishing, so the decisions to select articles for the series, uh, commission them, appoint series advisors, manage the peer review, 
uh, edit the articles, make the final decisions on the articles. That's all with the BMJ editors and Meta and Merck haven't been involved in any way. But the uh, publication costs have been met by the Advancing Health Online initiative. Um, and if I guess people wanted to, to look at this further, there's, there's uh, information on the collections landing page on bmj.com. Okay, um, so what was the what were the key messages of this collection? Yeah, so at its heart, I think people's uh, people having doubts or misgivings about vaccines isn't new, um, but social media is clearly where people's opinions are formed and is an incredible accelerant for for kind of transmitting information and those opinions around the world, um, but because. The issue of vaccine confidence isn't new. We also understand a lot about the kind of behaviour and the drivers that, that kind of give people confidence or not in vaccines. So things like scandals or a lack of transparency, misinformation or just outright disinformation, those are the things that erode trust. And then building trust, you know, that's about really understanding what people's genuine fears and concerns are and and answering that with useful you know, contextually appropriate information so that they can 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 help them make their decisions. And that takes time and I think that's the challenge for social media companies is to is to actually make an environment where that can that that can happen and over a long period of time and I think that's probably in my opinion where where a lot of them are failing. Okay, so if it's it's a complex problem, it's not just what you're reading on social media, there are other dynamics at play here. So how do we help people make better decisions? Well, there's not really a simple or straightforward solution, but I had a chat with Heidi Larson and that really helps to explain why this is so difficult to untangle. I'm Heidi Larson. I'm an anthropologist, uh, but I've been working in health my whole career. And in 2010, founded the Vaccine Confidence Project at the London School of Hygiene, Tropical Medicine, which is now kind of a global consortium uh, investigating and mapping the drivers of vaccine confidence, good and bad. <laughs> You've been working on uh, the Vaccine Confidence Project since the early days of Facebook, um, before Twitter even existed. And the social media environment changes so quickly. I mean, now we have generative AI on the scene. So the interaction between social media, vaccine confidence, must be really complex. How does this rapid change affect the insights from your work? It's kind of a, a catch-22 in a way. It's because of social media that vaccine sentiments have become so volatile. They're much more volatile now than they were certainly a decade ago, and even more so two decades ago, you tended to know which groups, you know, were the more hesitant ones um, and, you know, issues you've had with them. Sometimes new things came up, particularly if there was a suspected adverse event. But in general, it was a little bit more stable. You could keep that knowledge attitudes practice study on your shelf for, you know, at least a year. These days, it's you know, it's not like that. Um, so social media monitoring has become crucial in terms of uh, keeping your finger on the pulse of new and emerging issues while getting the sense of scale, scope and scale with other types of methods. Um, but 
it's also a field that is um, changing radically on a daily basis, as you know. Um, one thing, even before uh, generative AI, uh, we had the issue too that not you know if you're trying to get global representativeness with social media, not everyone's on the same platform. I mean, you know, in Russia you've got VK, and other places you have. I mean, uh, Philippines is very much on the on Facebook, but uh, Japan is all about Twitter, for instance. Mm -hmm. In in Africa, you see different groups. And what's happened in the meanwhile is that more and more people have gone on in, into more private spaces like WhatsApp. Um, and while the government regulations have gotten stronger and companies themselves are being pressured to be clean it up, so to speak, uh, that also affects uh, research because it looks cleaner than the sentiments are. Mm. Um, you know, it all started to look a little better on Facebook for a little while, but then it wasn't that those things didn't go away. They moved to Telegram or they moved right. to somewhere else. So you need to keep your eye on the ball. And also, you can't be jumping at every little thing that comes up. I mean, one of the, at one point I talked to, you know, colleagues at CDC at the very beginning of our work to say what would what would be valuable to you mm -hmm. and um, and the acting head at the time said listen if I had to answer everything that comes across my desk related to these hesitancy and refusal issues that's all I would do mm -hmm. and 150 percent help us triage Right. So one of the things we've been trying to do is create criteria, create you know a way that we can say, okay, this is persisting, this is coming up in multiple settings, this we need to pay attention to. When I think about communication about vaccines online, I tend to think about misinformation. But I've heard you say that we perhaps spend a bit too much time focused on misinformation. Why do you think that that's the case? When I was saying that it's we have too much attention only on the information mm -hmm. is that there's also a lot, a lot, a lot <laughs> of material out there that is not misinformation, that is hugely damaging to people's um, health decisions. Okay. It's, it's very emotive, it's fear-driven, it's questioning, it's provoking questioning. Do you really know what's in a vaccine? Right. You know, would you give your child an apple if it had this, 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 and this in it. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it it is, they're incredibly sophisticated. And with each further regulation, they get even more sophisticated in turning statements into questions, making sure that it's not explicitly misinformation. And it's been a real challenge for the platforms who are trying to, for those actually who are making the effort, to um, kind of mitigate the harmful information. I mean, the kinds of things they would take down and feel legitimately they could are things that were explicitly harmful. Drink a quart of chlorine, you know, to cure your COVID. Well, that came off. You know, and there are certain things that they felt very confident that this should this is not a good thing and this can harm people. But there's a lot of other messy stuff that is not that clear. Um, and that's where we have to pay attention to. That's where, you know, people start to get hesitant. And that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing when we pick up on it, 
we need to, you know, get not only accurate information, but, um, you know, address the other um, aspects of emotion. I'm leading a, a commission on, currently leading a commission on the emotional determinants of health, which is fascinating, but <laughs> learning every day. <laughs> um, and uh, and we've we've been looking at how um, uh, social media uh, dynamics can drive emotions uh, from confidence straight down the anxiety. Well, to talking about anxiety, I did want to mention generative AI. Um, I guess its ability to mimic human behavior and understand patterns of human behavior mean that it, it may be able to tap into those emotional responses much more quickly, much more profoundly than, than before, uh, than, we, than we've seen before. Is that something that is a concern to you? We, we do have to be careful with it. We, it does have, you know, I mean, when we see what people have managed to do with just basic social media in such harmful ways, um, you know, it's kindergarten compared to the, the risks if they go awry um, uh, with with AI and, and generative AI. Um, but, you know, it's another reason we have to be careful with how much regulation mm -hmm. we put on because we don't want to restrict the innovation around um, making these tools more safe. Mm -hmm. And don't drop the ball with all the other stuff going on around uh, people still talk to each other. People still communicate, you know, and people still use other medium. Um, we can't underestimate the, you know, the the oral traditions. Um, you know, we do a lot of research in Africa and TV and radio. Our TV's number one across Africa, West Africa's uh, radios near near to it and in West Africa actually radio is a bit higher so we need these other we need to use these other mediums we need to find out who are people turning to you know uh, what are they relying on for their information um, and I'll tell you these these bad bad actors as they get referred to sometimes who are driving the disinformation are also going offline um, you know, they they know um, that they've got to get, you know, that there are more and more restrictions. You know, I see there are flyers. They they show up at, you know, schools and parent-teachers meetings and town halls. You know, they go onto billboards. They go, uh, or hoardings. So uh, don't lose the context. So links to the feature and the collection are in the podcast show notes. Uh, and I'm sure we'll be returning to this topic in the future. Paul, thank you very much. Um, now, when it comes to mental health, particularly depression, you may be telling your patients that doing exercise can help them. But sometimes that advice can be vague and not always very helpful or motivating. People want to know exactly what exercise will work best. Well, a new systematic review and meta-analysis has just published in the BMJ, um, examines some of those questions and comes up with answers that might help us. So Duncan Jarvis, our multimedia editor, talked to the lead author, 
to find out more. I'm Michael Motel. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland in Australia. So for a long time, we've been told that exercise will help depression, but that's uh, a lot to ask of some people. People think, oh, I've got to go out and run a marathon to, to feel better. Now, the research you've just published with us is trying to re-delve into that and give people a little bit more of a concrete idea of what helps them. So perhaps we could start there. Um, what exercise uh, helps us when we are suffering from depression? Yeah, so there's a range of exercises that are really potent for trying to help people with depression. Things like strength training and yoga work really well and they're also really well tolerated, uh, meaning that people are, who are given that prescription are likely to, to finish them. But also things like walking and running, um, we found Qigong to work and Tai Chi. Um, we found there's things like mixed aerobic exercise, just doing things that get your heart going work really well. We found some types of exercise that don't uh, work so well. So we found that you know, just doing stretching doesn't make a difference. We found just general encouragement to be more active didn't make a difference. And even things like cycling, as much as I am a cyclist, doesn't seem to improve your depression that well. There's been a lot of research about this over the years, and you've done uh, a meta-analysis, and there have been other meta-analyses uh, mm. on exercise for depression. During this, you found an enormous number of uh, studies. Could you just take us through what, you know, some of the the results of your search were? Yeah, so we thought that updating a Cochrane review might double the number of studies that were there because they found, I think, around between 20 and 40. Um, we ended up finding over 200. And that was because we included exercise when it was compared to anything. And we found all sorts of strange things that didn't quite fit in the actual statistical part, like whether dates or bright light helped improve exercise. But because we had over 200 studies, a lot of them were looking at these particular exercise treatments compared with things like antidepressants or therapy, we were really able to dig down to whether there were any differences between, say, strength training and, and SSRIs and antidepressants. Mm. Now, a problem with that evidence base has been the quality of it. Mm. And generally, you know, how good was the research that you, you found? So overall, unfortunately, none of these studies met like the Cochrane criteria for a low risk of bias study. And the, the major problem was that very few of the studies, you know, blinded the participants to the hypotheses of the study and blinded the staff who were delivering the intervention. And as we know, that leads to a bit of an expectancy effect where you, you think this is going to work and so it does. And it might lead to a bit of self-selection where only people with depression who were considering exercise might be sort of likely to sign up to this trial. So that is a big caveat here. Other things were good about these studies. Half of them had a registered protocol. A lot of them were reporting their methods very transparently and handling missing data. And so sort of overall, we can't be as confident in the results here as we might be for antidepressant medication, where they are a lot of double-blinded randomized trials. But I think still, even when we control for those, those sort of possible biases, the, the results seem robust. They still seem like, like exercise is really good for depression, even once you take out the studies that sort of are, are higher risk on these domains. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering there how one would actually design a trial where the participant <laughs> is double-blinded to their exercise. <laughs> and you 
carried out the systematic review, but you also did a network meta-analysis. So just take us through very quickly what you did there. So the major advantage of the way that we did things was that it allowed us not just to look at, you know, say, strength training as a bucket, but allow us to compare the effects of strength training with aerobic exercise or with antidepressant medication or with therapy. And there might have only been a handful of studies that did that comparison directly, that directly compared strength training with antidepressant medication. But there were lots of studies that compared them to, say, a, a control group, a placebo control group, or weightless control group. And so this really allowed us to look at, at specific differences between types of exercise and other types of therapy, um, and also look at the difference in intensity of exercise and dosage to see that, yes, the more intensive uh, that we prescribe exercise, the better people tend to do. And I suppose this really uh, is a boon to the kind of social prescribing, exercise prescribing movements that are sort of beginning to, to trickle out into healthcare systems around the world. Yeah, so, so we found that, you know, antidepressants do help and sort of our effect sizes are pretty similar to meta-analyses that had 500 studies in them. But we did find that giving exercise on top of antidepressants was much better. And, you know, when um, I was working with patients with depression or when even I had depression myself, very rarely a doctor would prescribe like an actual exercise therapy. It was it was much more like, here's the WHO guidelines. You should probably do some more exercise, don't we all? Ha ha ha. And it wasn't very structured or specific. And it really does seem that it would be, you know, a cost-effective approach to provide people with more support around exercise, given things like a gym membership or even a personal trainer are, are often more affordable than, you know, intense therapy. And some people just cannot, you know, afford weekly sessions with a psychologist for, for 10 or 20 weeks. And so we're really not saying one or the other here, but we are saying that, you know, physical activity and exercise really deserves to be kind of a frontline treatment alongside things like antidepressant medication and therapy as another option for people who it doesn't fit to do one of those other approaches. And the, some guidelines tend to suggest that, um, but others say that, you know, currently physical activity is really just a sort of a secondary treatment that should be used after those things fail. And we judge that that's probably a mistake. Obviously, all of your methods and your results are, are available for people to go and have a look at in the paper. And they should do that because we're not going to be able to go into all of that detail here. Um, having looked at that, it does make one wonder about what's going on physiologically, psychologically, um, when people are exercising, socially even, perhaps, because you saw some effect there. So um, as someone who, you know, is a psychologist who studies this, who um, refers patients to, to go and have exercise, I just wonder, do you have any insights about, you know, what's going on here and, and how people can kind of begin to pass some of this into into their own practice so we tried to find all the studies that looked at what was causing uh, this relationship between exercise and reduced depression so we looked at all the mediation studies and that to be honest the research isn't fabulous there aren't a whole lot of really good randomized trials that look at the mechanisms that's going on between but there have been a whole lot of um, previous reviews that have tried to unpack these things and it to be honest, it's probably a combination of a whole lot of different things. So if you join a running club, um, there's 
it's probably most likely that things like the social interaction, the sort of runner's high, the sort of immediate positive affect helps. And even just being out in nature, all of these things probably slightly improve depression. But like a lot of those wouldn't apply to something like yoga, where there might be a different mechanism. And that could be an increase in sort of distance from your thoughts and increase in sort of mindfulness that comes from that. Um, and all of them sort of fit under this idea of like behavioral activation, which, you know, as a, as a therapy, means just kind of getting people with depression out doing things when their mind is sort of telling them that it's really hard to, to get out and do stuff. And so, you know, even going to the movies is like a, a piece of a, a therapeutic approach called behavioral activation. And that works almost as well as when you sort of pile on all the cognitive uh, therapies that, that work well too. So it's probably a combination of just doing more things combined with, you know, getting feedback about your improvement and, you know, positive affects. And, and maybe there, there could be some neurological or neurobiological mechanism here, um, which would explain why more intense exercise works better. But the evidence for this is still really emerging. And that article, Effects of Exercise for Depression, is now available online. It's open access and you'll find the links in the show notes. Finally, the legacy of COVID isn't just in increased waiting lists, but lingers in the lives of everyone who lived through it. A new drama series based on a book by Rachel Clark is about to be launched in the UK and our opinion editor, Jolie Neal, went to the premiere. Welcome, Jolie. Thank you for having me. Well, one of the stories about her involvement is that we just recruited Rachel as a columnist mm-hmm. uh, on, on, on the BMJ. And after writing a few columns, uh, Rachel very politely said, I'm going to be a little pushed for time because my book's about to be turned into a TV drama. Yeah. And then she's been away off working on that and you went to the premiere. Yeah, I did. Um, we we're very lucky to get some opinion pieces out of her before she was whisked away. I mean, do you think that what the workforce went through and what the bereaved families went through comes out clearly in this series? Yeah, definitely. I definitely do. And I think also the the sort of disconnect between the political messaging and the the reality that doctors and patients were experiencing with hospitals being very overwhelmed and a lack of PPE is expressed very clearly through this series. And I managed to catch up with Rachel about um, her experience and what inspired the series ahead of the premiere on the 19th of February. I am Dr. Rachel Clark. I'm a palliative care doctor and I I worked through the pandemic um, on COVID wards and wrote a book about my experiences breathtaking, uh, which we have now turned into a television drama. So after the premiere, I was wondering um, how it felt for you to see your experiences reflected on screen. Well, it's very strange because even though um, I am one of three screenwriters and I also was there on set and I was also very involved in the editing process, I don't think any of that quite prepared me for the feeling of seeing your experiences, your colleagues' experiences actually depicted on screen in front of you. I I find when I watch uh, almost any bit of the series, it often makes me cry. It's still 
traumatic to watch it on screen because it's almost as though everything that I went through and my colleagues and patients went through at the time is there being reflected back to you and it's enormous. I mean, we are now almost four years down the line from the start of the pandemic and yet none of it feels um, historical, none of it feels sort of subdued and settled and as though it's receded into the distant past. It's in some ways almost as raw and vivid today as it was at the time and I think that says something very important about how much, um, how deeply the pandemic affected NHS staff and how much we are still living a legacy, a live legacy of the pandemic, almost whether we like it or not. Um, Given how traumatic COVID was for so many health workers, did you feel that it was cathartic to tell your story? I think if you don't, if you don't communicate a traumatic experience with other people, if you keep it within yourself, it, it very often festers. It doesn't go away no matter how hard you want it to. It just eats away at you from the inside out. And I know that my experience, like so many peoples in the NHS, was undoubtedly traumatic at times. Even though I'm a palliative care doctor, I saw more concentrated death and dying than I ever knew possible really outside of a sort of wartime situation I, I I never expected to encounter anything like that and there was a time when I started developing um, uh, not PTSD symptoms necessarily but certainly symptoms of trauma I started having panic attacks there was a particular time when I was driving to work to go to the hospital like normal. I was determined to get there, try and do a good job. And my body almost mutinied and I started shaking. I I had chest pain. I couldn't breathe. I had to pull over by the side of the road and literally clutch my chest because I was in so much pain. And I remember talking to a colleague, a consultant about that um, a, a, a few weeks later. And she started crying and she said, I feel the same way and I haven't talked to anyone about it. And we realised that all across the NHS, people were going through the same thing. And they weren't talking about it because they didn't want to be self-indulgent. They had a job to do. They had to keep going for others. Uh, you know, why, why are my feelings important? Everyone's going through the same thing. But the truth is, we went through a deeply traumatic time most people with very little in the way of psychological support. I know there have been some fantastic exceptions in the NHS, but I know of so many people who have received nothing in the way of psychological support. I felt it was incredibly important to try and talk about it in the hope that through talking, through sharing our experiences, that might take away some of the stigma and the, and the loneliness and, and actually through talking together, it might help us heal. And beyond people's individual experiences, I really feel that there's value in a collective acknowledgement of what happened during the pandemic and a grieving for the pain and loss that many people experience. So I wondered if you saw this series as a way of memorialising the people that were lost in the pandemic. Yes, absolutely. I I, I think it's so interesting um, how 
in, in human nature in general, how we respond to traumatic experiences, that the temptation um, as an individual to um, sort of deny or suppress a traumatic experience and just look away from it, move forwards, carry on um, looking ahead to the future is it's very hard to resist. And almost collectively as a society, I think we are doing that to some degree with COVID. But if we don't have a meaningful memorial to the members of health and care staff who lost their lives in the pandemic, in part because they chose to try and save other people. If we don't do that, it's almost as though that sacrifice has become invisible. It's almost a form of disrespect, I think, not to publicly acknowledge that loss in the same way, I think, for members of the public to not publicly acknowledge the immense loss of life caused by COVID, over 230,000 people lost their lives with COVID on their death certificate. If we do not, as a, as a country, a society, pay public tribute almost to all those people who lost their lives, it's almost as though, as though they're being erased. They're being erased from the public consciousness now and they're being erased from their our collective history as well and I, I I think we can do better than that. That's it for this episode. All of the articles we've mentioned are linked to from the show notes and we'd love your feedback on them. So please send us a rapid response on bmj.com and join in the conversation. We'll be back in a fortnight with more medical insights, including the moving story of a little boy with hereditary deafness who woke from anaesthesia, wanted his mum, he was signing, but unfortunately none of the staff around him uh, knew what he was trying to say to them. We'll be talking to his mum. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any of the other major podcast platforms and that episode will be delivered right to your phone. Until then, I'm Cameron Abassi. Thanks for listening.